Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Biggest moves in the markets, the oil markets today, West Texas, 4954 up by almost 2% on the day. Brent crude at 51.80, also an almost 2% move on the day. What's causing that? Well, the proximate cause, the, uh, uh, the, the forecast that, uh, a few, that uh, stockpiles in the United States uh, dropped uh, significantly. We had the, uh, the uh, Petroleum Institute numbers out yesterday. At 10.30 this morning, we get the Department of Energy figures, and we'll see what they show. Uh, there was, of course, a turn in oil prices not long ago when OPEC announced that it was going to try to put some sort of production caps in. The interesting thing is after prices went up, analysts piled into the market saying, not going to happen. Uh, so <laughs> let's get an expert's view on this. Jeff Curry is uh, head of uh, Global Commodities Investment Research at uh, Goldman Sachs, and he's with us now. Um, when OPEC says it's going to lower production, however they do it, whether it's a cap, whether it's a cut, whatever, uh, never works. Um, so why did prices turn around if everybody knows that? Well, I, I'm going to be careful here. It, it never works. Well, when you look at demand shocks, um, they typically work. But that's because when these producers have nobody to get their barrels to, they have to actually shut in. Sure. So they does work under that environment. And typically, every time you see one of these announcements, you do see trading volatility to the upside, which is what I think we thought. But I think to your point, when it's a supply-driven bear market, there's no evidence that these, um, these uh, uh, cartel announcements work. But I think the key here, we have yet to hear from Saudi Arabia. The outcome of this and the success of it hinges on Saudi Arabia. Well, Saudi Arabia is the swing producer in OPEC. They're the ones with the excess capacity. They're the ones who can cut back. But they're struggling financially right now. So do they have any motivation to really do this? They definitely have a motivation to do it. But will they be successful is the real question. And I think there's several factors to um, take, consider. One is they excluded Nigeria, Libya, and Iran from the agreement which means that there's a possibility that, that these three producers could add another million barrels per day of production over the course of the next year. If they did that, then any type of production cut would be negated by that group. So that's point one. Point two, shale response. You get prices into that 50 to $55 a barrel range, you're likely to see a 500,000 barrel per day increase in shale output, which will negate it. Um, the other factor, demand will likely be weaker, and then there's brownfield production from places like Canada and other parts of the world. So the, the bottom line, this thing is likely to be self-negating um, towards the end of 17. Beyond. Well, as I understand it, uh, the idea is to cut back by 740,000 barrels a day. Uh, 
less than 1% of global production. So what kind of impact? Suppose it worked. What kind of impact could it have on prices? Well, now that number's a million because they, they had a target of 32.5 million barrels a day. Um, last month's uh, production numbers were where you got that 740. We just got the new um, uh, production numbers, which would, which were 33.5. Which Surveillance is update time. Yes. So it's a million barrel per day cut now. But but if we look at the impact that that would likely have on the market, there's several offsetting factors to think about. One, you'll likely get a 500,000 barrel per day increase in shale output. Uh, two, you will likely weaken demand by about 200,000 barrels a day. Um, and then three, um, you would likely see a modest mm-hmm. um, improvement in um, brownfield deliveries. Let's say that's a million. So you, you can come up with an 800,000 barrel per day offset like that, which only leaves the, the impact of about 200,000 barrels per day, which really becomes relatively small. So only the people in New Jersey are going to pay more. For, for gas. At least in the very near term. But then even then, it's going to come off. The gas tax is going up. Yes. Anyway. Yeah, well, yeah, the tax overlay alone will kill you. Bloomberg surveillance. Good morning, folks. Bloomberg. I was, I'm a little out of it, Mike. I was up watching the Orioles Derby last night. You made a better choice than I did, although the game went longer than the debate. So, yeah. um, but much more exciting. Jeff Curry um, with Goldman Sachs with us. How cartelly is the cartel right now? I don't know how cartelly the cartel has been uh, over the course of the last 15, 20 years. Agreed. But is it is it a new cartel now or is it same old, same old? You know, one of the more fascinating aspects of this announcement that came out last week is that there was no reference to price. And typically a cartel um, targets yeah. a price level. Really? Um, and instead they talked about inventory overhang. So it doesn't even have the words of old. You go back the last time they actually cut production um, in the wake of the financial crisis in 2008, they had a target of 70 to $80 a barrel. Now, most people argue that there's an implicit target of you know, 50 to 60 but it's interesting they haven't come out to do it. I think that the key issue is that, and they understand this, running a cartel in the current environment, given the advent of shale, is extremely yeah. difficult. Matthew, question then. Elasticity or responses of the money floating around the world on oil, I'm assuming the elasticities were different at $100 a barrel than they are in this range now. Is it a more supple oil market, a more accurate moment-to-moment oil market? Or is it stuck in a sludge, if you will, within this range? Well, I, I, I think the, the, the key difference is when we th- think about that period that we were in $100 a barrel is that the world was really short supply. And so prices had to go high enough to get the Americans to let go of the oil they were consuming so the Chinese could consume it. And that's how we got up to those levels. In the current environment, there's more than enough supply for everybody to consume almost as much as they want, um, which is why we're now in this relatively lackluster trading range at prices close to what we call equilibrium values. So what that points to is a relatively boring, low-vol market market compared to what we saw over the previous decade. So um, I don't know if I got an exact answer from you, but right now we're right around 50 bucks for both um, benchmarks. Uh, where do you think we go from here and how long, you know, how high does it go and how long does it hold that? Well, 
our expectations, and I think you know, given the, the, the implications of the storm going on in the Gulf right now and the impact it's having on imports, means that you can trade up you know, above this $50 barrel range. You know, I, we look at our forecast for next year. It's roughly, on average, $50 a barrel. Um, we initially had the market going from 45 to 50 next year, 55 Given the OPEC announcement, we would reverse that. We would have it going from 55 down to 45 because any impact of a production cut is going to be near-term and uh, put upward pressure on near-term prices, but it starts to have a negative effect as you move towards the end of next year. Uh, Jeffrey Curry from Goldman Sachs on oil, and maybe we'll touch on a couple of other commodities, Tom, uh, including Red Sox tickets. Oh, that would be a good commodity. I'm sorry to see the Baltimore Orioles uh, go. Good morning to everyone in Toronto. Uh, getting ready for the Maple Leafs and enjoying the Blue Jays, but it was sorry. To, I'm sorry to see the yeah. Orioles bow out. Go Mets! That's what we're looking at here in New York. Uh, with us, Jeffrey Curry of Goldman Sachs, an update on oil. Jeffrey, frame for me the Goldman Sachs belief between what we see in a set of interviews of range bound to higher prices with a terminal value that can vary from fifty-five to seventy-five dollars a barrel. And a minority view that says this is a house of microeconomic cards, and if anything, will break the range. And given exogenous supply shocks, we could even go with a lower price. Where do you fit into that mix? We would be in the camp of more range-bound currently um, with risk to the downside because our, our long-term terminal value is $50 a right. barrel. So we're, we're, we're sitting on those numbers essentially right now. Um, so we had argue um, we, we'd be more skewed to the downside right. in terms of it's risk. It's right where I wanted to go. $50 a barrel, I'm going to call as bordering outlier terminal value versus the rest of the world. When they wake up and figure out Goldman Sachs is right, what will be the shock to oil companies? sovereign wealth funds and others when they migrate down $5 on their terminal value or $10? Well, I, I think a lot of what's driving this is a is a downward shift in, in the underlying cost structure. And that's being driven a lot about what's going on in the, the underlying macro. As you start to see a stronger dollar puts downward pressure on the cost structure. So I want to be cautious here about the catastrophic nature of a revaluation here. In fact, I, I, in fact, I was up in Canada speaking with some really high-cost players. When they looked at the valuation of projects at $100 a barrel back in 2012 and 13, the economics of a lot of those projects are the same today because the macro changes um, in this underlying environment. So when we start thinking about those longer-term terminal values, you really have to put it in the context of the cost structure and the overall macro. So I, I, yes, it's, they do need to re Value that. I think one of the key reasons why they're hesitant to do it is that asset values provide them collateral for leverage to access the debt markets. And if they lose that, they lose that access. Mike, Exxon, oil down 50 percent, 100 to 50. Exxon down 16 percent from the top. Well, the majors, though, the, the, uh, vertical, the ones with more vertically integrated, they're in better shape than the independent producers because they, they – go midstream and, you know, different places to get some revenue. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. And we like to say we're taking the E out of E&P, meaning we're not doing exploration anymore. We're focused on production. And what do the integrated oils do? They do P very well. 
What do the independent oil and gas guys do? They do E very well. Now, there are some exceptional cases, you know, the Permian shale players in the U.S., but when you start to look at um, the, the smaller independents and E&P companies more broadly and globally, um, the outlook there is going to be have, have significant headwinds. If I may think like a trader for a moment, which means I'm going to have a time horizon of about three minutes, um, we're getting the production numbers and the – uh, AEI numbers went down, uh, the API numbers went down. Uh, where did that oil go? I mean, what, we've seen some declines in stockpiles. Why are we seeing that now? Well, for one, um, your imports have been down over the course of the last several months because you had a lot of storms in the Gulf. And so the ships are unable to come in and actually deliver that oil. So that's more of a temporary issue than it is one that I think is fundamental and lasting and likely resolve itself. So you look at a lot of the rally we've seen in prices over the course of the last week and a half. It's one, trying to price in that OPEC news and two, pricing in the lack of imports in the U.S. and the decline in those stockpiles. Um, so you uh, you look beyond that, um, these longer-term fundamental drivers become more important. I think the real issue is, will we see a real supply cut out of OPEC? Um, and the jury's still out on that. When you say uh, $50, uh, for what time period? Uh, it, in terms of looking at our, our forecasts um, for next year, um, we have a $52.50 average price. When we think about, actually right now, it's, I think it's 50 When we look at the longer term value, it's also 50 So we really don't have a significant view here relative to where current prices are. And the forward curve sits a little bit up, so it would be slightly negative. Um, and just to clarify, this is for Brent or WTI? WTI. WTI. Okay. So there you have it, the, the Goldman Sachs view. Jeffrey Curry, thank you so much, particularly uh, getting us ready for the commodities. And in, in, in the summary, if you didn't hear it, folks, earlier with Mr. Curry, the idea of a commodity bottom and a lift in commodity to help those IMF nations looking for a better commodity world, uh, maybe not so uh, much. What did you guys do for your science project, Mike and Tom? I did the same thing you did. You know, you drop the Mentos in the Coke bottle, it <laughs> yeah. comes out the volcano, right? <laughs> right. Because <laughs> it was more fun to make a mess than anything else. <laughs> I guess you can't market that. Huh? <laughs> Tom probably did You some guys complex... are not old enough to know what a Gilbert Chemset is. And what did you make with that? You took logwood and you mixed it with something approaching an acid and your mother would come racing down the basement stairs. <laughs> what is that smell? Gilbert Kemset was how you did this. Jeffrey Dennis probably doesn't know what a Gilbert Kemset is. He's with UBS uh, looking at international economics. Jeff, did you do chemistry? Oh, yeah, but a million, a million years ago, and I've forgotten all about it. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, that's where I am on it as well. Uh, Jeffrey Dennis, uh, we have important meetings in Washington. The International Monetary Fund is always there as a backstory. What is your backstory for the next few days? Um, I mean, I think in my world, in, in emerging, uh, what would be interesting to come out of Washington would be to what extent we see any initiatives that could be taken to improve the growth story in the global economy. I mean, although emerging markets have had a really, really great year, of course, so far, big up 
platforms to develop markets, we're still doing it against the background of um, a very weak growth. Uh, perhaps we should call it sluggish growth, about 4% in DM, around 1.5% to 2% in DM. And, and the extent we're seeing equities doing better, it's because of things like the weaker dollar, the rebounding commodity prices, et cetera. So we'd like to know if there's any top-line growth coming through, an acceleration. So that's what I want to hear from from the events in Washington, D.C. But you never do. I mean, the, the world never gets together and agrees on this stuff. So uh, so what's no. plan B? No, I mean, I think, to be fair, plan B is what we've been focusing on in our research lately, and that is to try to identify stock opportunities in a in in what we're calling a, a slow-growth world, because I couldn't agree with you more that I don't think we're going to get anything out of this. But we're looking for, you know, the obvious global initiative that could help would be some sort of sense of, you need some fiscal expansion generally, but I'm sure that doesn't get decided this weekend. But assuming we're in a slow growth environment still, we're focusing still on 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 possibility in terms of the hunt for yield, given the bond yield is also very low in the developed world and where there's yield opportunities in the EM. And also we're trying to find uh, identify areas where you're seeing improvements in profitability in, in EM over and above just simply an acceleration of the revenue line, because that's not going to come through. And so we're looking for companies that are controlling their costs better, that are cutting back on their capex. So I think there are things to do at EM, but um, we'd love to see some more growth. And as you say, I'm not sure we get that out of Washington this weekend. If if um, any particular country is uh, is likely to add to the, the growth scenario, would it be the United States, do you think, at this point? I, I would have thought so. I think in the event of whoever wins this election, there's a possibility of some fiscal expansion. I think it's fair to say in Europe there's a bit less fiscal tightening than there was. I think those are the obvious two, and to the extent you're leveraged to that as an emerging market, it will be helpful. But frankly, I don't think this is a big story. I'd just like to see some positive news on that front, but I'm not sure we're necessarily going to get it. Jeff Dennis brings it in. Buried in his research report is a screaming cry to own Turkey. Jeff Dennis down 48% from the peak of 2013. UBS is overweight Turkey. State your case. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's a market that is, uh, did very well earlier in the year with a favorable liquidity conditions. Then yeah. it deteriorates badly, not least because of the politics, of course. It's very cheap. It trades at eight times forward. It's... Um, the cheapest market in EM apart from Russia. Um, it's, it's companies typically are quite resilient to um, you know macro developments, and they're very generally relatively profitable. Um, uh, you've got a bit of a pickup in earnings momentum, and you still have a relatively benign global backdrop. We think the Fed moves rates in December yeah. for sure, but it's not like the global backdrop is about to deteriorate dramatically. The liquidity yeah. will still be there. So cheap market, underperforming, like the story. And the deception is, if you look at it in the Turkish lira, it's rich elevated, but in U.S. dollars, it's cheap, cheap, cheap. Yeah, do you hedge right. I mean, your do you hedge your ownership? I mean, you could do. We don't tend to advise clients about that particular strategy, but you could do. Having said all of that, we don't see the much downside in the Turkish lira over the next um, several months compared to say, other um, EM currencies that we didn't look more overboard, like South African Rand. So there's always currency risk in a place like Turkey. But actually, we see less risk there than we do elsewhere. And so um, I'm not sure hedging is is, is necessarily, um, you know, it, it, it has to be necessary at this point. Is there a geopolitical risk uh, priced into that market? Well, I, I think certainly one of the reasons the valuations are low is because of geopolitics. I mean, clearly it's such a terrible situation in the Middle East. And you, of course, got the events inside Turkey itself. Um, 
But I think you have to say, we know about all of that. Could it get any worse? Of course, it could. It did domestically in Turkey in the middle of, of, of July. But we doubt it gets much worse from here. And we think that it's fairly well priced into the market. And investors like to look for bargains. And this is a cheap, uh, this is a cheap market in, a, in an asset class, frankly, that's got a little bit on the rich side overall. On a one standard deviation, Michael, it's been a little bit cheaper, as Mr. Dennis states, but you go back to 2009, then you go back to 2003, and you can even wander back to 1998, you know, the 98 crisis. Okay. Is a valuation now. There's a lot of fancy mm-hmm. math there, but uh, that, that's cool. And, of course, Turkey's position has improved dramatically in terms of the performance of its economy. Whatever you might want to say about the politics has improved dramatically in the last 10 years. And I think, you know, you warrant a slightly mm-hmm. higher multiple. And a logical and very good reason why it's sold off because of the domestic events. But um, it should be outperforming in this sort of global environment we've got this year. And so we're looking for some of that gap to be made up over the next several months. What is uh, your view on China, which... Um you know, is on the border of uh, emerging markets, but it has such an impact on other uh, emerging markets around the world. Mm-hmm. It's a big question, of course. We think in China the um, the slowdown continues. We don't expect it to uh, end up in an economic collapse, a hard landing, if you like. The slowdown will continue. The short-term bans you're getting in the property sector, we think, will be relatively limited. Uh, will will eventually, I should say, peter out in terms of timing. So the slowdown continues. Um, I do think the amount of debt that's being put on board by the Chinese could create a problem for the economy and the markets down the road. Um, but uh, as I say, I think the, the thesis here is more of a general slowdown um, in, over the next several quarters. Um, the currency is not going to have a hard uh, a major devaluation. So I think that risk is also subsided. So it's there. It's not going to stimulate commodity demand, frankly. The slowdown is going to continue. But we don't look yeah. for a hard landing scenario. We think that's too negative. That's been a real theme uh, this week, Mike, is the idea of what to do with commodities. Jeff Dennis, how does the U.S. dollar fold into all this? You follow so many countries just in one chart. Mm. Hungary, you go from Hungary to Indonesia, which becomes a blur for people, and they filter yeah. that through dollar dynamics. Yeah, correct, correct. Um, our view is that the dollar has peaked against developed market currencies generally, so there's going to be some variability of performance, but we don't see a lot of appreciation about any appreciation at all, for example, against the euro. Um, we think sterling has probably done its thing for the time being against the dollar for this year. So we don't see a lot of dollar strength um, from here. And what that means is, therefore, you're not going to get a generalized move down of emerging market currencies against the dollar in our view. But there are some currencies that have got overbought this year on this huge surge into EM, this huge carry trade. Mm-hmm. And the obvious ones would be, uh, to a certain extent, Brazil, Certainly the South African round, not so much the Turkish lira. And then depending, of course, on how the election itself plays out in the U.S., arguably the Mexican peso as well. So we see selective weakness of EM currencies against the dollar rather than across-the-board weakness. The reason for that is we just don't see the dollar going up that much higher over the next several months against EM currencies generally. Well, that that, uh, was kind of where I wanted to go in in terms Mm -hmm. of currencies. which ones are most likely to move and why? Is it, uh, it, it's not just, uh, is it the idea of, the, of, of what they owe in dollar terms mm-hmm. or is it something mm-hmm. else? 
No, I think it's more, it's it's obviously in terms of relative competitiveness. If you had a very big move higher, I think it's in terms of domestic fundamentals, in terms of weakness of the economy, pressure on the fiscal side, pressure on the current account side as well. And, and in, the, in, the, in the case of South Africa, obviously the risk at some point that they're downgraded by the ratings agencies, which is something the markets are concerned about. So I think it's a sense in which currency has really got overboard from a pure carry trade liquidity point of view and you fold into that domestic fundamental such as you know the fiscal situation as opposed to worrying about what debt levels are debt levels generally in em foreign currency debt levels are a lot lower than they used to be several years ago i know that's the big driver i think it's more domestic fundamentals and frankly have they simply become overvalued jeff tennis thank you so much greatly appreciate it with ubs um, and their global emerging markets equity strategy uh, a team. All of this folding into, I love the idea there of Turkey flat on its back. Um, on a financial basis, you heard Mr. Dennis, you know, remove himself from what seemed to be brutal politics. <clears throat> Mike, do you have an idea what the backstory will be in the hallways of the IMF? It's always something totally different than the agenda, isn't it? Uh, this year, probably, you know, fiscal policy and whether or not anybody's going to do it yeah. and, and how things are changing. But obviously people are going to be very focused on Brexit and what that means for the world. So, uh, you know, there's sort of two themes. Uh, well, you know, uh, let me put it this way. The overarching theme may be uh, populism around the world because that folds into Brexit. It folds into the yeah. race here in the U.S. and certainly uh, in Europe, uh, the the presidential races for next year in Germany and France, uh, Austria, all of them yeah. uh, dealing with this issue. So globalization and the end of globalization or the threatened end of globalization, uh, that'll yeah. probably be what you'll pick up without doubt. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Well, the IMF is gathering uh, the next couple of days down in Washington to take stock of the global economy. And there are those who suggest the global economy not doing as well as it could be doing, even in this uh, world of recovery from uh, the Great Recession. Alan Greenspan has been watching the global economy and the U.S. economy for many, many years as a member of uh, the U.S. government in various capacities, ending up as the chairman of the Federal Reserve. And we welcome him to the program this morning. Good morning to you, Mr. Chairman. Um, the, I want to start with uh, a headline posed in a Bloomberg story previewing the IMF meeting, and that is that the world and uh, the policymakers who are gathering in Washington face something of an existential crisis because for decades we have believed that globalization was a good thing, that uh, unfettered free trade was a good thing, that the global economy was better off, and now there seems to be a growing feeling, if not a consensus yet, but certainly a, a large uh, number of people who feel that maybe that is no longer the case. Well, the one thing that's very obvious is that after a number of years of 
trade exports or imports uh, as a percent of GDP, uh, we've seen those data grow fairly dramatically year after year, meaning trade increased relative to the GDP. The last couple of years, that has not been the case. It's slowing down, and obviously it's a, a different environment that we live in today. But the arguments for globalization go back hundreds of years, and the evidence unequivocally indicates that it is a very major advance in world economic conditions if you have globalization. And the question only is, who is most benefited by that? Uh, there is an overall net plus, but in the process you're losing some of the people who are, are indeed losers as a consequence of trade. And that's become a major political issue. Well, why do you think that is now, given that uh, there are always losers? It, we used to make a lot of shoes in this country. We haven't for years. Uh, textile factories moved away decades ago. Why has it come up now? It's come up now largely because of something else, namely that there is global stagnation. If you look across the spectrum, especially the developed world, uh, output per hour, that is productivity, has slowed to a halt. And rising standards of living, which are so general in the post-World War II period, have largely have been put on the shelf. We in the United States are barely growing, and no one else is, with very rare exceptions. There are just very few countries in the world which are growing above 4%. China being one, obviously. The Philippines uh, are surprising everybody. But it's basically the stagnation that is causing the disillusionment. Well, we've had this before in American politics. Certainly in the uh, late uh, 1800s, uh, we saw this. We saw it uh, after the Great Depression and uh, the America First arguments that came up. Uh, so it's not unusual to see uh, the kind of populist movement we're seeing. But do you think it is still cyclical now? Will this pass? Or is there a danger that, uh, that we adopt policies that are not in our best interest because uh, of the political climate we're in? Well, uh, you're quite correct in drawing on history because history shows you go up and you go down. Uh, the major problem is in in international trade, uh, there is a net gain that occurs for the world as a whole as a consequence of that. And the only issue is who benefits the most or who benefits the least. And apparently there's a very significant short-term disinterest in uh, getting involved in this process. It's a po wholly a political issue. It's got nothing to do with economics. The economics are unequivocal. Trade, especially global trade, is a positive good for the, for the global markets as a whole. And to the extent that everybody benefits from that, uh, that's why it's always been relatively popular over the generations. But we run into periods such as today or the last several years where the economy has slowed to such an extent that uh, 
the kickback has been uh, as strong as I've seen it, and I certainly trust that it goes away sooner rather than later, because the uh, history of uh, this type of reaction uh, is clearly negative in the long run for everybody. Well, would you argue there is a role for government at this point to play, maybe a, f- a fiscal role in the sense that you've always been a, a, a sort of, of a libertarian bent, small l libertarian bent, but is, is government the only one that can solve the problem now? Well, the question is what, mean, what, what does the solution mean? We've had periods where, remember, we've had huge increases in tariffs. And the basic purpose of that was to protect the domestic industries. Uh, and we finally got away from that when the Smoot-Hawley tariff in the, in the, there was a major factor in the 1929 stock market crash and the collapse in the economy in the 1930s. And in the post-World War II period, we got away from all of that. And indeed, we've been functioning mainly in the context of open global markets. And in fact, we have an international organization, which CAT, which is we're supposed to keep it open and then keep trade moving. Uh, but when you get the economy slowing down, it's a beggar thy neighbor type of environment. And you have to, the only solution to this problem is to get productivity rising again and standards of living rising at the equivalent of a productivity growth rate of, say, 2, 2.2% a year, which is our long history. We're well, way below that now. We're speaking with former Federal Reserve Chairman Alan Greenspan on the eve of the IMF meetings in Washington. Uh, Mr. Chairman, the IMF putting out its uh, annual Global Financial Stability Report this morning, saying that financial markets have benefited from central banks' unprecedented actions and monetary policy does need to remain loose. However, it says some policies, such as negative rates, are reaching the limits of their effectiveness, and the side effects of low rates are rising for banks and other financial institutions. They're undermining the resilience, particularly of European and Japanese banks, as well as insurance companies, and that raises the risk of global financial instability. Would you disagree or agree with the folks at the International Monetary Fund? Oh, I most certainly would agree. I mean, when you're dealing with an issue where the income from financial intermediation approaches zero, a whole major segment of the financial system, which has always been the factor in assisting economic growth, is in trouble. You can't have a whole series, not only insurance companies, but you can't obviously help any any institution which requires interest income is in trouble. You can handle it for a short while, but we're now in a period where it's now beginning to grab. And I think, I haven't read the IMF report, but the conclusion I think is wholly consistent with where the type of fears that I've had. Well, does that argue for getting off the zero bound around the world? Well, I think it'll happen automatically. You can't keep interest rates below what I would call their psychological norm, normal. Interest rates are an aspect of human time preference. And the one thing about interest rates is you go all the way back to ancient Rome 
even ancient Greece, and they're not terribly different from where they are today. And since 1694, we have a daily discount rate from the Bank of England. And un until the post-World War II period, uh, that rate has stayed between 5 and 10% uh, for generation upon generation. There's something fundamental on the way human beings behave that sets the interest rate, or I should say sets the time preference, but the time preference is most evident in the interest rate, and our the history is unequivocal on this. Rates cannot stay down at this They're being suppressed abnormally, and I think they will start to move uh, reasonably soon, uh, wholly independently of central bank policy. Except that when you have a buyer of last resort who is price insensitive, who has basically said uh, that it will buy up uh, huge amounts of uh, financial assets, th then you take the market price out of it, do you not? No, because basically what will happen is that the rates will rise wholly independently of what people are doing. In other words, We've never had a situation in which the government can continuously print money without prices beginning to move. There is a zero number of cases in which that has happened over the generations. As soon as inflation begins to move, and it will, then the whole structure of the impact between money and prices is going to change. We've talked about this on the show uh, with other people. Ha have we seen a structural change in the nature of inflation dynamics that either makes that less likely to happen or slows the process down significantly? Because we have had six years of extraordinary policy, and yet we have no inflation. Well, we have no growth either. I mean, basically what's keeping the inflation rate down is the fact that productivity growth is virtually zero. Uh, the growth in the economy as a whole is close to zero. And under those conditions, the demand for goods and services is extremely weak. And that has been reflected in the extent to which prices have been held down. But that can only go on for a short time. Long. I, I, I would say... It can go on for a while, but eventually uh, you're going to get the economy starting to pick up normally, and that in turn will do extraordinary things to the price level. Well, we have had this argument that um, we're in a, an extraordinary time, a, a new normal. Uh, someone like Ken Rogoff and Carmen Reinhart would argue well, it's not really different. It's just that we're, we had a different kind of financial crisis, uh, economic crisis. It was a financial crisis, and that just takes a long time uh, to, to uh, come to an end. Do you see us getting to the end of a recovery from a finance-based crisis? Uh, recovery of what? I'm sorry. The, the economy, growth starting to pick up again, um, held down by the, uh, the kind of recovery you get when you have a, a banking system that uh, basically caused it rather than the kind of imbalances that produce traditional recessions? The interest rates are being held down in the short end of the market 
largely because the interest rate paid on reserve balances to those who hold reserve deposits at the 12 central central uh, the branches of the say Federal Reserve System. Uh, what you have uh, is a situation which cannot go on indefinitely, and it's only a question of when it breaks out. I don't think there's any... This is not a new normal. There's the probability of that is negligible. Uh, you've got to look back over history, uh, and this is fundamentally... Uh, not a, it hasn't changed in the fundamentals. Uh, it's interesting to note, for example, that we are beginning now to see the money supply growth accelerate. When money supply growth accelerates, a hundred times out of a hundred times, the price level begins to move up. It's just starting now. Uh, I don't know how long this subnormal level Inflation is going to persist, but uh, I would be almost certain within two years it's going to look different. Much of what the central banks around the world have done over the uh, last six years has been experimental. It's been stuff that economists talked about in theory but had never had a real laboratory situation to use, uh, negative interest rates being one good example. Um, what do you think now, looking, surveying the world, what do you think has worked and not worked? If you were going to put the toolkit together for the next time a central bank has to respond, what would you put in? What would you leave out? Well, I don't think the issue is the central banking. Right now, it's the economy. If the economy remains as sluggish as it, as it is, uh, then effectively you can't have inflation uh, and unless and until the economy starts to pick up, you will see no inflation. But that means that we're going to live in a state uh, which is close to zero GDP growth. And I would say that is a politically unstable uh, position. Something is going to give. It may be political and it may be economic, but this is an, not, not a sustainable equilibrium. When you survey uh, the economy, uh, before we let you go, let me ask you this. How long do you think the expansion has to go before we run into recession, either caused by bad policies or by uh, the normal cyclical things that happen during a uh, recession? Well, I think that we're moving in what, what uh, we used to call stagflation. We've had the structural structural zero, near zero growth rate, but we've had no inflation associated with it. I think history tells us that the next step is stagflation, which we had during the 1970s, and that's when the things begin to change. And so what I'd be looking for is one with the tightness of the labor market developing, yeah. you're getting wages rising. But profit margins are falling, and hence the rise in wage costs is being muted by the fact that margins are absorbing it. Going to have to leave it there. Thank you very much. Alan Greenspan, former Federal Reserve Chairman.
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.